Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is CM Alexander with the news. In travel, for those hitting the road with their families this summer, be advised of Nevada's Highway 50, aka the loneliest road in America. If you must travel this road, here are a few of our safety tips. Have a minimum of four spare tires. Make sure cell phones are fully charged. I'm going to kill you. Keep emergency water in your trunk. And if you see coyotes, you must steal their eyes. Safe travels. Tack, you're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King Book Club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. Hey, constant readers. And today we are kicking off yet another Patreon selection, brand new book time. We are covering Desperation, a Patreon selection from Nick Tennant, and we are reading through part one with Ben leading the discussion. Surprise, ben, take motherfuckers. It away. <laughs> What's up? Hey, it's been a while. Okay, yeah, actually, I was hoping one of you would know the answer to either of these questions. Okay. One, when was the last time I hosted a book? The Gunslinger. Mm-hmm. When was that? Years ago. Uh, well, I'm excited. Yeah. Uh, I specifically, when I saw which one of these books actually got chosen. Desperation, Desperation was picked. And then reg- somebody else, when we made the announcement that Desperation was picked, someone okay. else picked Regulator. <laughs> Thank God, because I would have forced you. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, I, I would have said, I, I don't care. We're interrupting the Patreon uh, <laughs> rotation because these two books have to be read together. Have either of you read either of these? Never I've, read either. I've read Desperation, but not. Not the Regulators. Nope. And I've seen Desperation. I've seen the adaptation right that was like when it came out exciting yeah i'm Uh, so excited mm -hmm. matt frewer steven weber god ron perlman ron perlman yeah Mm -hmm. oh so good all right anyway oh my second question was uh have we ever done two books back to back that were released back to back chronologically before that's a good question because desperation came out directly after the green mile fun fact really yeah that's wild i (laughs) get it Uh, They are so wildly different books, but this is Golden King era for me. (laughs) This is, he was Uh, on a streak. (laughs) Yes, it has. I don't know how to put it into words, but it has that that feel. The, The quintessential king is a book with a huge cast of characters from disparate places all coming together in the face of something terrible. Mm-hmm. And I I love it. So we start part one, Highway 50, in the House of the Wolf, the House of the Scorpion. <laughs> that, oh, Instantly that goosebumps. So <laughs> and we start in the middle of the desert, driving down the highway, where our, our main characters, for sure, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. are uh, driving down this giant empty highway, and they see a cat. I was not expecting to start off with animal violence, but here we are. It starts quick, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I hate it, though, because the cat's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, I guess I should have mentioned that part. Not only is it dead, but it has been murdered and nailed to a speed limit sign. 
It's also so crazy that Peter Jackson's canonically the Peter Jackson. Uh, <laughs> it was my first note was Mary Jackson and her husband, Peter Jackson. That's going to be distracting. <laughs> but the, he, his first question is, is it a black cat? Th- making the, yeah. the leap to Satanists in the desert. And her response, no, it's tiger stripes. Which, but it doesn't make it better. Well, <laughs> it, it at least tells you who you might be dealing with. Who you're not dealing with. That's, I mean, that's true. Yeah, if it was a black cat, this book would be about Satanists. Right, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's no demons incoming. Uh, <laughs> yeah, tiger stripe demons. <laughs> uh, so they they uh, are driving, they see it, and for a split second, Peter acts like he's going to stop and go back, which gave for me what? huge... Uh, right. <laughs> children of the corn. The, the instant, like, that's a bad sign. You yeah. do not stop. <laughs> For this, I think all children of the 80s and 90s are probably huge cowards when they come across something uncanny in the world when they're traveling. Because that's a <laughs> turn around, make other plans to get to where you were trying yeah. to go. Kind a thousand of scenario. percent. Yes. <laughs> and especially this book, this book, the setting is perfect. It makes me so terrified of the American Southwest. It gives you an empty feeling. Mm-hmm. It's because they are driving through the middle of there is nothing for miles. Mm-hmm. In fact, Peter is they're talking about how creepy it is out here. He says he's suffering from ballroom syndrome. And I looked, I, I Googled, what does that mean? It's when it's being in a place that feels too big. The, they reference ballroom syndrome in House of Leaves. Fun fact. When you are inside a place that feels infinite, despite the fact you're inside. Wow. I Googled I it and there were no responses <laughs> oh, for oh. ballroom syndrome. I was like, did you <laughs> make this up? They, they are creeped out. It doesn't stop uh, Peter from randomly groping his wife uh, <laughs> while she is discussing why in the world people would be choose to be born in the middle of the country. <laughs> Uh, who all of us born in the middle of the country ask ourselves the same question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what did you guys think of these two? To me, at least, they seemed very better than this place. I, right? I thought they were a little bit pretentious, but I liked them. They're they're your friends who you love to death, but they're kind of a lot sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> like the way they describe, they're driving this car home for Peter's sister, who's coming home to New York from college. Who sounds from Oregon. like a fun time. She sounds like <laughs> I a would riot. much rather be hanging out with her <laughs> right. than Peter and Mary. Peter and Mary are kind of squares. They're a yeah. little square. <laughs> well, when they, they talk about the drive home, they stopped at a friend's place that lives on the West Coast and had a time there. And I just imagined at the end of that get together, those friends being like, oh, thank God we don't have to see them for another few years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, as they're having this discussion, Peter looks in the rearview mirror and sees a car rushing toward them and thinks like, wow, we haven't seen any cars in a real long time. When you guys are traveling, do you ever think about this? I think about seeing other cars. If I am traveling and like we live in the Midwest, it's different. We at least have foliage. (laughs) Uh, But like there I get out in the deep, deep between places, Mm -hmm. and I get freaked out, like, in a real way. Because, like, no one knows specifically where I am. What if you came across, like, the Mothman? (laughs) Good question. Yeah, what if that? Well, I'm not in West Virginia, so... 
He has wings, Ben. <laughs> Good point. Can't argue with that. Touche. Yeah, so this this car rushing up on them. Wait, that's also equally as terrifying. I'm sorry. Because <laughs> he just Wait, are we he, still talking about the Mothman? No. Okay. Okay. He just looked in his rearview mirror because of the cat. And and if this mm. if he's in this space as he described, then he would have seen a car coming for miles behind him. Where did it come so, from? That's it's something true. the cop does a few times. Yeah. Just appears. Where he just, yeah, he, someone turns around and he's there. Yeah. As they're driving, he realizes that it's coming up really fast. Uh, so fast that he super troopers them. And it is <laughs> yeah. not as funny as it should be. It's unnerving. So the, the cop blows past them. He pulls over, even though the lights aren't flashing. And like the Mary's like, why are you pulling over? And he's like, well, give him the road. And there's no one here, but I'm still responsible. Come on. <laughs> and they get back on the road. And then he sees the brake lights come on the police car. And even though it's well ahead of him by now, he also hits his brakes. Mm-hmm. And then he starts gaining. And then the cop swerves into the other, la- the oncoming lane and just Let's them catch up. It's so, so fucking upsetting. scary. What yeah. a horrible way to pull somebody over. <laughs> <laughs> this book posits very early on the outlandish premise that cops are scary. <laughs> <laughs> right? Am I? No. I love that this scene is so, like, from the very beginning, this interaction is spooky and neither of them quite understand why they it's their instincts or the way peter rambles because he's so Mm. uncomfortable about talking to the cops i wrote down so many times (laughs) don't talk to the cops (laughs) yes no answer the question yes no accept your ticket and you move on yeah so this cop pulls him over and gets out and he's enormous someone describe what we're dealing with clancy brown is who i keep picturing interesting i love that I love that casting. I mean, Ron Perlman's I know, Ron Also Perlman. Ron Perlman, just a, a huge guy who takes up your entire line of sight. But then <laughs> if you ask me to imagine him as the cop, I think about Pet Cemetery too. I know. <laughs> Shame on that movie, specifically for ruining this and not being kind of bad. <laughs> yeah, he's just a brick shithouse of a dude. He gets out of the car. I like that when Peter sees the hat on his head, he's like, yeah, there's no way he was wearing that hat inside the could the clearance couldn't make it. Well, we later find out he's six seven. Yeah. Probably on 250, 60 pounds. Yeah. yeah. Just an enormous dude. And of course, he comes up to the window and without thinking, Peter is following orders. He gives him his license and the cop looks at it and says, Organ donor, is that wise? And then <laughs> follows it up with the first instance of tech. A vocal tick, or is it? <laughs> these things are Good so question. upsetting. Both of these things. <laughs> if I ever had an interaction with anybody and they were acting weird like that, I would just die. <laughs> I would just die of fright. Can we redo the Super Troopers meow scene, but say tack instead? <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> the cop is off yeah. from the beginning. The reason he pulled our our protagonists, for <laughs> sure, for the whole book... <laughs> 
over is because their back license plate number is gone. Someone had cut hooligans. off. Yeah, hooligans. <laughs> uh, the cop says they're a dastardly bunch. And it almost makes Peter laugh. Well, he, he, and their ways aren't his ways. <laughs> Stop talking like that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. The writing of just some of the offhanded things the mm-hmm. cop says, mm-hmm. it is woven in so Oh, it's so surreal the way he speaks. He's like a different person talking for a moment. And later on, there were several moments because I actually, in preparation of actually leading an episode again, read a physical copy of this book. (laughs) And there were several of his statements that I had to go back and read Mm -hmm. and be like, wait. Did it make sense that he just says he's a wolf? (laughs) Did I miss something? It's also so great because, especially in the mid-90s, an authority figure saying something outlandish, like, you are intimidated to correct them. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he can get away with all this is... What he says, the Mirandizing is the severe, (laughs) egregious one on Peter's. But uh, first, we need to get to why they're being Mirandized, because... Because the cop tells them, you know, about their license plate and you'll be fine if you take your license plate off the front of your car and put it on the back. You can make it to your destination. It'll be great. And Peter, like a dipshit, (laughs) opens his trunk in front of a cop. Don't do that. (laughs) To be fair, he has no idea what's in there. He assumes... Mm -hmm. It is the spare tire and the tools his wife said were in there to do the license plate. Yeah, and they had already searched the car mm-hmm. because we find out that Mary's sister is, or no, Peter's, Peter's sister, Peter's. is a flake and a, a druggie. So they had silently, wordlessly searched all of her possessions and didn't find anything. Because they're not, they're not druggies. They don't know where you would hide that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> they looked in the wrong places. I love reading this again because for all these moments now you just have that anxiety of thinking no (laughs) don't open the trunk just just get in the car and lock the doors and don't move (laughs) it's also one of those even though we all know here that if it weren't for the license plate he would have found some reason that's (laughs) that's what makes it also so upsetting right like the bag of weed and but i do love the small touch that the gallon bag of weed has a smiley face sticker because they established that that's his sister's thing as it turns out we needed to be able to recognize this bag of weed later which is a neat a neat (laughs) uh, bit They find this bag of weed and he arrests them, puts them in the back of his squad car. The driver's side seat is so worn from this guy's size that it is like bent Mm -hmm. and uh, Peter's legs are threatened to be stuck (laughs) because there's so little room. In this whole bit, Peter is, of course, babbling. He's trying to explain that it's... Mary says, it's sure, this is dope, but it's not ours. And I'm like, shut (laughs) up. And Peter says at one point that I might be overeducated by Central Nevada standards, but he was basically still one of the good guys. What an asshole. (laughs) What a fucking asshole. But they get pulled into the back of the car and start driving away and drive past an RV. With four flat tires. Yep. Four. That's... In an open door. It is abandoned. Yeah. I really like the way this story comes back to telling these stories. Yeah. So cool. It's not just abandoned. It's so much worse. There's Mm. a doll laying face down in the Uh, dirt next to it. That's bad. I don't like that visual. Nope. It's also nuts when... 
they're taking him. Can, can I go over the Miranda yes, thing? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, God. So they're when they drive past the RV, they also notice that he's going exceptionally fast and he's taking these turns at high speeds. But he starts Mirandizing them and just in the middle of it, he slips in. I'm going to kill you and then moves on. And Peter and Mary have this interaction where she's scared shitless. <laughs> he's like, he probably doesn't know what he said. <laughs> don't, yeah, sure. don't address it. <laughs> As they're driving, he at one point uh, begins screaming, do you understand your rights? And turns and they see that he has bit his own lip open. Mm. Just the beginning of what he's going to look like by the Ooh. end of our reading. And it is here, he says, I see holes like eyes. My mind is full of them. What? What? <laughs> you guys know what he's kind of like? A m- more mystical George Stark. George Stark has charisma. Uh, yes. <laughs> this but guy also has a little just bit of the, Disagree. the physical imposing mass of rotting meat <laughs> in man shape. Oh, yeah. that is Once, super threatening. Yeah, by the end yeah. of part one, he is definitely starting to look mm-hmm. like George Stark. <laughs> that is for sure. Um, it's just a nod to his buddy Bachman for the ne- for the next book. There we go. I I'm I thought so long about how <laughs> I was going to pitch to you guys to do these episodes. I really considered pitching doing one episode of one book and then one episode of the other, <laughs> and alternating. That would be madness. I, it's <laughs> wild. It's it's a really interesting oh, uh, thing, wait. and I, I'm I very wait. excited about it. And listeners that have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about, stick around for like <laughs> six episodes. <laughs> yeah, he says this thing, I, I see holes like eyes. He says it because he is driving 90 miles an hour down the interstate, looking at them in the back seat mm-hmm. and driving perfectly. Yeah. It I makes perfect. Well, it makes perfect sense when you know what he says later yeah. that he has eyes everywhere. So, but the literal "I have eyes inside my mind" that phrase breaks my brain. What a way but it makes to describe sense. that! Yeah, yeah, I would have never put those words together mm-hmm. that way. They are driving, and they finally start to reach a small desert town. They drive past the local church and civic center where the Desperation Public Radio is (laughs) recorded. Was. Was recorded. And painted over the sign is the word dead dogs for no particular reason. Let's move on. Because it's Stephen King. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess where they're going to have to watch them die or you're just going to tell us the words dead dogs. Yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, this might be the most animal violence (laughs) we have experienced in a single book Mm -hmm. it's up there yeah it's gotta be up there guy rips a bird in half (laughs) later (laughs) on that is pretty fucking rad though as they're driving we get the what i am going to assume this is another thing y'all i read this book probably my sophomore year of high school i remember maybe two things that happen in this book interesting I remember kind of like with Insomnia and Dead Zone, I remember overall the book and kind of vaguely plot point to plot point what happens, but I do not remember specifics. Yeah, I remember two, one specific fact, one specific scene, not even a scene. It's like a paragraph that is for some reason, we'll get to it. (laughs) And then 
Something else that, as we read, we'll get to it. There's a detail that immediately made me remember the ending of the book. I know exactly (laughs) how it ends and nothing else. I don't know how we get there, but I know the last thing that happens. All right. Kick Um, ass. But so I assume as we're driving, we get this kind of a tour of what is going to be the important locations throughout the book as we kind of get to explore desperation. First, we drive past a trailer, the Church and Civic Center, a trailer park where there's a sign in a front yard. This is a 1996's version of a conservative yard sign. I'm a gun-toting, snapple-drinking, oh, yeah. <laughs> Bible-reading, Clinton-bashing son of a bitch. <laughs> snapple-drinking? <laughs> I didn't Why? know the right claim Snapple. I, Good get, guys. It's very confusing. Which is weird for an, a product that has so many facts. <laughs> got you. I fucking nailed it. I fucking got it. That's amazing. I looked at Ben immediately. Like, that show, I know exactly who that joke's for. Oh, that's good. Anyway, the important thing about the trailer park is there is a satellite dish. I didn't in the clock backyard. that. Uh, they, they mention it uh-huh. and specifically that it is labeled as a communication array. Ah, I fully missed that. Then we drive past a Quonset hut, a very fun combination of words to say, <laughs> owned by the local mining company, the Desert Rose Cafe, the town proper, which is a single intersection with a casino, a grocery store, a bar, stuff like that. And then finally, a road leading to Rattlesnake Number 2, a.k.a. the China Pit, which may or may not be important later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm jealous that this book doesn't have a map in the front. I, yes. My next map is, <laughs> or my next note is I have a false memory of this book, including a map of desperation. Regulators has a map. <sighs> that must be That's it. what it is. That is disappointing then. Because, yeah, I would love to, I, any book with a map. <laughs> a, a map instantly is, yeah. better. <laughs> and finally, they pull into the parking lot of the police station. <sighs> And Josh, would you like to lead us into the police station? <laughs> I sure would. I do have to say that he makes a Peter, Paul and Mary joke as they're mm-hmm. walking in. And it just made me nostalgic for the moment we made that connection during Kingdom Hospital. <laughs> and uh, now I'm going to go watch Kingdom Hospital again. Why? Uh, I, I enjoyed it's it. Fun. I thought it was really fun. <laughs> but what's not fun is when they open the door because he's making this very lighthearted joke and he opens the door and there is a nine year old girl with a broken neck lying at the bottom of the stairs. And his uh, first words are, I can't remember everything. Jeez. It is such it, it gave me whiplash. It's a jump mm, yeah. scare because it comes off of him joking For really the first time, it seems so wildly inconsistent. It's Mm -hmm. like jarring a little. And then he throws open these doors to sudden. He's got a little bit, a little bit Annie Wilkes vibe to him. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of that like unpredictable. Mm, Might say normal things one moment and then you're like, oh, the bad person's here now. (laughs) Especially as we go on. He has a very, uh, he has a sense of humor. He does. He does. Uh, yes. And just, a sense of theatrics. Yeah. There's there's a tussle as Peter and Mary panic and and try to run. It oh, he just puts his arm around mm. Peter and he at first Peter thinks that he's poking him in the stomach with his finger, 
It's like, and, God damn, this guy's finger is big. Right. And then he unloads the gun into Peter's stomach. Like, shot, 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 shot. That was such a surprise. I, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was not expecting one of these first two people. And it's so quick. This book, okay, we haven't said this yet. It's great reading yeah. it. It's so mm-hmm. easy to read. Yeah. So mm-hmm. much fun. And it kicks off with action, like, instantly. And everything that's happened so far... You're riveted. You're just rushing to read through to find out what happens next. I I wish more King skipped right to here's what you're here for. (laughs) And this this moment really sets you up for no character is safe. Like every Mm -hmm. character we meet because of this moment, they feel like they are in very real instant mortal danger. We should place bets on who we think is going to survive because <laughs> I vaguely re- remember maybe, but I'm not sure if I'm right. <laughs> I'm only betting on one person surviving and we don't get to meet her until the last part of this. <laughs> well, okay. We've reached uh, chapter two and we meet the family who the befell this oh, fate. Damn. The RV family, the Carvers, Ralph comes to with a splitting headache. It says Ralph Carver was somewhere deep in the black and didn't want to come up. And as he regains consciousness, he is refusing to remember what has happened to him in a really short period of time. Yeah, he's telling himself he's hungover. Mm -hmm. He's not. (laughs) He probably has a concussion, but... Where is he? He is in a jail cell with his wife. His son is in another cell with a stranger, an older guy with white hair, I believe. Mm-hmm. And his wife is pretty badly bruised. Yeah. Her face looks like she got punched a lot. Yeah. And because we are in Ralph's perspective here, we don't know how badly he is hurt, mm-hmm. but it is very clear he has suffered a pretty terrible head injury. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's covered in blood, and he feels. He says at one point he feels like his skull has been cracked open. Ooh, probably has, <laughs> and probably has. When he wakes up, he finds himself in this detention area. The room is flanked on three sides by cells. Uh, we've kind of went over. There are two cells on each side of the room, and a larger drunk tank. They assume in the center, which is empty. In the center of the room is a single desk and chair that I love. They describe it as looking like a minimalist set in a play. (laughs) It looks so sparse. And the only thing is this desk and a shotgun. We flash back to a little bit of uh, where the Carvers came from, what, why they are out in the middle of the desert in the first place. And they were on just a family vacation to Lake Tahoe, I think. Yeah, they were, uh, they talked about go where they go. They go to the lake and Ralph goes to the casino mm. and they, he actually tried to talk them out of it this year because he's like, you're probably, you're probably getting tired of mm. it. And they, she, the wife insisted and they were on a very happy trip. It now. says, as they decide to go back to the lake, it says the gambling had already begun or had begun oh. already and the first loss would be their daughter. Ooh, dang. Yikes. Yeah. We are with the Carvers in their ID. Their son, David, is reading the Bible, and the father, Ralph, is... He he sees David reading the Bible, but we are instantly told that this family is not religious. Mm -hmm. This new obsession of David's is out of nowhere. It started last year when 
the thing happened to Brian. And we're kind of left with that for a while. Apparently that flashback goes nowhere. Because my next note (laughs) is of Mary being shoved into the room. Well, we we get a lot of family stuff between them. We meet the little girl who fell down. Kirsten slash Pie. Was pushed down the stairs. And she's the younger sibling. And you see the sibling dynamic between her and David, which he's just a sweet if not a little bit strange, according to his parents, Hmm. older brother, and he cares for her. And we are with them when all of a sudden their tires all go flat. And it's it's okay, though, because (laughs) Ralph handles it so well. He just very, very calmly pulls off. And I think his wife was asleep and she's like, what's going on? Are we there yet? And, you know, the family is just being a family. And it's the last moment they are just a family mm-hmm. before everything is terrible for them. The This part two cuts back between mm-hmm. what's happening with the Carvers in the past and the mm-hmm. cell stuff. Not too much, well, do I you, think. Yeah, Ben, do we want to jump back and forth with it or do we want to talk uh, about... That's a good question. Let's, uh, let's start with what happens in the RV. We'll go chronologically because after... The tires pop instantly. They see the cop pulling up behind them. And this fascinated me because with Peter and Mary, the cop starts off making sure to play the part. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he has a completely different approach than we saw earlier. Yeah, because his tactic here is just kind of to rush everything to to, not give them enough time to think mm -hmm. and so they're just following orders and making it easier for him to kidnap them absolutely not trying to hide that he is doing this maliciously like really because i think (laughs) the first thing he does is he runs he gets out of his car runs grabs the spike strip and throws it back in his car like to me Mm -hmm. if i saw that i would be like oh yeah that was just a spike strip he put that there. Yeah, but the way he's looking around for who put that there, mm-hmm. that's that's mm-hmm. one of ours. And the way he explains it later, he's like, well, it's a cop that did it. <laughs> oh, which is <laughs> such a big exactly. yeah. <laughs> It's such a scary bit because he's like just using his authority yep. mm-hmm. to be like, people will not question me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's so terrifying. Sam, do you want to take us through the RV? Like yeah, the- he, he comes up hot, like you guys said, to Ralph's door, and he's saying, you guys, you're in danger. There's a, a guy out here. He's very dangerous, and I need you to do exactly what I say, basically, and even tells them like in what order they yeah. are to get into his car. And so they are they're making their way there. He does mention their names, which... David, the son, makes note of, and later mm-hmm. when asked about it, he's like, oh, I saw your guys's plaque when your dad opened the door that said, welcome to the Carvers or something. <laughs> I don't know. That, that's how those... It's Carver time. Carver yeah. time. <laughs> and they they all get into the vehicle, and, and Kirsten drops her Melissa doll, which she is upset about in only the way a child could be mm. upset about that and not everything else is happening. <laughs> yeah, because she's, what, six? Uh, about nine 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 yeah. okay yep and she's wanting her mom to get the doll and she's gonna like make a grab for it but our officer's just like you guys you're gonna die just get in there and stay in there and he jumps in the front seat and they take off and they they ask who's out there and he just responds a very bad guy and gives us uh, uh our second tech 
Ooh, yeah. And is this when Ralph, or maybe it's the other character later, at one point he says that and someone's like, is that the name of the person he's looking for? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, someone, <laughs> finally someone asks him, you know, what is tack? Why did you say tack? And he screams in their face, I didn't say tack. You said so tack. Upsetting. It's, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> now that now that you brought up Annie Wilkes, that that <laughs> di- bit of dialogue feels like it would come out of Annie Wilkes' mouth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they're driving away, Kirsten is inconsolable and is asking if it's Mr. Big Boogeyman. Hate yeah, that. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, can I point out the thing that was most unnerving to me is the description of his teeth. He looks back and they say, and he says that when the cop looks at them and he shows his teeth, he says they look more like tools than bones. And I don't know why, but that <laughs> that's awful. Yeah, yeah. Do you, sorry, do you guys think that Mr. Boogeyman is the Boogeyman? I think that so. King wrote about. Yes, I for sure think so because she, he specifically says, you know, monster in the closet. That age but that's too. Just what the Boogeyman is, right? No, but I. I, I guess I'm saying I feel like King is specifically, I bet that that child character has something to do with that or mm. was all, knows a family who is also a victim of the same uh, character I, from I the really book. hope uh, that the cop fights the boogeyman later. <laughs> That'd be very cool. Or we'll in some if, kind of fight night. We'll have to see if Beck and Woods put that in the adaptation. <laughs> I, I do love when she's crying over her doll and David's trying to calm her down and he's like, we'll get her. She'll be okay. Mm-hmm. I'll help you clean her up. And she's like, you'll wash her hair. The, the relationship between <laughs> the siblings every yeah. time it comes up is fucking heartbreaking. Yeah. Knowing mm. what is about to happen. Well, yeah, you know she doesn't make it immediately mm. because you meet her first. Yeah, and yeah. so every every interaction that we get later on in flashback between David Just and Just shrouded Ty in grief. Is so sad. <laughs> they drive into the town and there's something I want to, I, I just want to mention in case it pays off later. <laughs> Every time he drives someone into town, he almost flips the car. Yeah. <laughs> he takes this wide turn into the town and everyone that rides with him thinks for a split second they're going up on two wheels. And... I gotta hope it comes back later. <laughs> There's a point later on where everyone's in the jail and they hear tires squeal that I was like, oh, did he just flip the car? <laughs> we'll get to it. Uh, this is where he says it, it's a cop, not a lie. And then he parks the car without looking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, the, the cop not having a name. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Everybody's tried to look at his name tag. He's and not wearing one. one. Yeah. And so for... The majority of this first part, he's just the cop. I would have been okay with that. that, I wish, I will say, I wish they would have kept it that way. I, when we learn his name, I'm like, oh, I was disappointed. I I don't mind it. I I don't know that I was disappointed, but I anticipated it not being named. And Mm. I was like, yeah, nice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Already I I had written down top tier King villain. Mm, He's great. Now, at the end of the chapter, it cuts to what we've cut out. (laughs) (laughs) An hour after this happens, an hour after they are put in the jail cells is when Mary is being thrown into the the room. This surprised me. Did I miss something? It 
it did me too. I didn't anticipate there being action so quickly. Everybody is really on the ball about like, lady, there's a shotgun on the desk. Mm -hmm. Grab it. Shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. He killed my sister, shoot him. And she, Mary, to her credit too, especially being thrown in that situation, I mean, it helped that she just watched her husband get shot so Mm -hmm. she can believe whatever anybody says in this moment. Mm -hmm. She hesitates for like maybe just a second or two. And then she grabs the shotgun. And I was, I mean, it happens so early on in the book, you Mm -hmm. know she's not going to get him. (laughs) But I was rooting for her so, so hard. I felt like she had a great chance. (laughs) And I love that it specifically says she is not giving him a warning shot. (laughs) She is not hesitating. She is going to try to kill this guy. And I'm like, yeah, good. She does kill his hat. (laughs) Yeah, she does. She misses. But man, what a close shot. And then she's trying to use it as a weapon. And as he grabs the desk and smashes her. Yeah. Between the desk, the chair, and the bars of the cell bot. It's so fast and so effortless. It's a pretty good tussle. It's really good. Yeah, the fact that she brings it down on his collarbone and he just shrugs it off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he's so, he's just so like, when he finally disarms her, he's like, oh, Mary, girlfriend, I'm <laughs> not going to kill you. Because she's saying, she's just done. She's mm-hmm. like, you fucker, kill me, get it over with. I don't care, you piece of shit. And he's like, I'm not going to kill you. And he pauses. And then he says, not when things are just starting to get interesting. I didn't realize until just now, re-going through my notes, that we don't. Do we not see the moment with Kirsten? We hear, hear about his, it, yeah. we hear the dad's like recollection of. Okay. Because it's the one horrifying line that's burned in my brain forever is as he's watching her roll down the stairs, he sees the moment when mm-hmm. she's not her anymore. Mm-hmm. And that broke my heart. It What happened was like, like a scuffle turned. He just yeah. carelessly pushed her. They were yeah. walking. They were like up the yeah. stairs getting in the cell and the cop just threw her down. Yeah. Yeah. It's just the fact that we don't linger on right. it, it and yet it's so powerful it, mm-hmm. it shows mm-hmm. how quickly things are going yeah and how just how bad and hopeless this whole situation there is, is nothing off limits in this book you feel that yes and now we move on to chapter three and meet our next main character forever for real such a piece of shit oh my god my my first thought is we we meet this guy john edward marinville and the first thing we learn is that he's a writer and then I'm like, okay, this is our king surrogate. Mm-hmm. He's an and then the second thing we learn <laughs> is that he's a wife beater. And yep. I'm like, weird choice, king. Not our king surrogate. Yeah, Maybe? and he, I do not believe for a second he is. Now yeah. that yeah. once we get to know him, it took me a minute into this chapter to decide whether or not King knew this guy was an asshole. <laughs> I, yes, I believe I believe he intentionally made yes, him the yes. antihero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, because like at first I, I realized it when we meet Steve. I'm like, oh, yeah, Johnny's yeah. the antihero. Yeah, no, Steve's got to be. He is one thousand percent meant to be a dick. We are supposed yeah. to not like this. Guy. And he pulls it off. Like you, you hate him. Oh yeah, so much. And then as things are happening, you're kind of like, well, I was at least begrudgingly sort of understanding and maybe feeling a smidgen of respect for him. Just like I, he's, I think he's a piece of shit and he's an asshole, but I think. He's, I don't know, I feel like he's going to have a good character arc. 
I think so too, but I think it might go the opposite way. <laughs> we'll get oh, to it when the key. I don't remember. Oh, yeah, man. I don't either. But I, I don't remember anything about this. I'm character. so excited. But uh, we get to know him. He's a 56 year old uh, writer who is inexplicably the best writer in the world, apparently, although we are not given any evidence of that. <laughs> he, Travels with Harley. Oh my Jesus Christ. I. It pisses me off so bad. <laughs> I bet the one piece of Stephen King that is in this character, I guarantee you. Is that he's a greaser boy? <laughs> is that fear that he expresses of once you've reached a level mm-hmm. as an author, yeah. people will you descend publish. into self-parody. Yes. And people and I, let you dangle to keep making money. I off guarantee of that that is something that he has felt like, or has like, how could you not reach thought, that level of that, fame yeah, and ha- not happen? had that worry? Yeah. Like anybody who reaches that level has to eventually feel that. Yeah. But yeah, uh, the reasons we are given for not liking this guy, he, <laughs> casually mentions that he used to beat his ex-wife, his first ex-wife. He brags about fucking actresses. He drops a casual F slur and refers to himself as the literary lion. I hate this idiot. (laughs) And right now he is driving across country on a motorcycle, riding his great on the road ripoff. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to his ex-wife. Who he specifically says, she didn't realize she gave me an idea, so I don't have to credit her and it's fine because she didn't even say anything remotely close to the idea, whatever she did say, gave me the idea I had, and then goes on to take us through the conversation where she literally Literally. told him exactly the idea he has. She just goes, you should drive across the country on your motorcycle and write a book about it. And he's like, I'm a genius. I, I missed that the first time through. It was the second time. I was like, whoa, oh, yeah. you piece of crap. See, that's how he gets it's, everybody around him. Yeah. We we fell for Johnny Marinville in that moment. It yeah. took us the second time through to see through uh. it. I, I, not me. I hated this dude <laughs> from the outset. And uh, this brings us to the first thing I remember about this book. Okay. Johnny pissing in the desert. Okay. Yes. I'm so... I this stood out to me more than it probably ever would have because there is so much time spent with his penis peeing <laughs> coming off of the green mile. <laughs> and we spent a lot of time with Paul and his penis peeing. Hey. <laughs> As Ben said, these were back to back, and Stephen King was he in was the working flow. On a oh theme. my goodness! I just, <laughs> these, this is <laughs> it, yeah, Stephen I King's piss era. Already forgot it was back to back. Jeez, Tom Hanks really inspired me. <laughs> um, yeah, I, he he. I, I don't know why. I don't know why. I read this twenty years ago. Why for twenty years? <laughs> every time I pee, I think about rubbing my kidneys. Uh, why? Literally, yeah. that's not a joke. That's funny because I have not thought ever since reading this. I have, I, I have. Okay, yeah. so yeah. so jokes on me. King is writing to his audience. <laughs> yeah, right, I guess when, when, I, when it when works. I, okay, yeah, when I'm sixty, I'm going to be so grateful he taught me to rub <laughs> my know, kidneys while I pee. I'm going to be grateful for the turn of phrase. His original fountain pen. <laughs> that is really good. I, I, I do refer to my bitch box now. So <laughs> how to speak to women as well. Put your original fountain pen in my bitch box. Okay, no, that is, cut it. That's that, what, never mind. Cut it. <laughs> All, bad. Um, All bad. Check my bitch box with your original fountain pen. Jesus Christ. There we go. 
throw it all out. Um, it, is the recording still going? Because I hope not. This is your the episode. The trick to get him to go is, is you actually you put the tip on your tongue first. And okay, that's what helps that, the, we're done here. Yeah, yeah. that's. Uh, so as he's being, we get what is kind of uh, Johnny's leading characteristic: fear of death. Fair, yeah, right. Because mm-hmm. th- this is he talks about how his career has kind of he's the greatest and he's the best, mm-hmm. and all the reviewers have compared him to the greats and whatever. But lately, you know, with the drinking and the drugs and the whoring and all of that, mm-hmm. he's he's kind of a joke. Mm-hmm. And he goes over, you know, all of the the many ways that his body could be failing. And uh, it, it just kind of informed his character for me. Yeah. What you don't know can't hurt you, essentially, is what his philosophy is. He reminds me of the character from Road Virus Heads North. Yeah. Also dealing with. For sure. Yeah. Like not wanting to know and mm-hmm. sort of having to come to grips with that. This is not a joke. Please don't laugh at me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need your support because <laughs> it's kind of awkward. In this book so far, I feel like, cause, and I'm only mentioning this because we kind of poke loving fun at King for his sex scenes. Mm-hmm. He kind of writes some raw, I think effective erotic stuff in here that is better to me than like, okay, Green Mile, we had mm-hmm. some intimacy there. And insomnia, of course, and some other things where we're like, oh, and like lifting her up, you know. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, this I thought was really, and I mentioned it here because there's a moment that he's reminiscing oh, about. Oh, I literally flashback. didn't even know what you were talking about. Yeah, the oh, flashback yeah. because the I was completely, my, my mind can't <laughs> think of anything other than the almost blowjob scene later. Oh, yep. Okay, that's not erotic. Yeah, no, that's bad. <laughs> no, yeah, behind the garage, he he's on the phone with his ex-wife and has before this, this trip. Yeah, yeah, the, this uh, thought back to when they were uh, still together, and it's yeah, very nice. It was uh, it was revival. It was recessing. <laughs> yeah, because they because they were like dry humping behind yeah. the. It's like it's. It's it was cute. just it was interesting um, because it, it was more like raw, kind of more uh, animalistic and less trying to be like sweet or cautious or not too sexy yeah it was it, it was animalistic but a little romantic yeah, too because yeah. of that relationship yeah. yeah i follow completely thank you anyway johnny finishes peeing and turns around the cops just How? there <laughs> he would have had to hear him drive okay anyway <laughs> no, I, no that's a great point and i love that mm-hmm. it's such a scary moment because it's surreal. It shouldn't make sense. They, yeah. There are miles of empty desert. You would hear. He even says later on, or maybe it's Steve in the next chapter, mm-hmm. says any car that passes out here yes, is a Steve. notable yeah. event. Yes. yes. And he <laughs> does not hear it coming. He just turns and the cop is staring at him. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of his many eyes knowing yeah. that he's there peeing and like get driving close and then just slow rolling. Like I just imagining <laughs> that's how I I like to think of it in a Michael Myers scenario where it's yeah. very stealthy, <laughs> very steady approach. I really like this scene. The, Between as, these two? Yes. Mm-hmm. It Th- is. This is the charismatic part of the cop. Yeah, it's so awesome because you don't expect it from him and neither does Johnny. You're sharing in his like awe of this guy who he dismissed as a country bumpkin essentially. Yeah. I actually I have a question. Yeah. So w- by the end of this chapter, we re- we we are informed that th- it is a spirit inside this guy. There's something inside this cop. 
there's also a question of how much of the cop is being used. I've been thinking about that. Is he in there? Is he dead? Is he kind well, of aware? I'm, I'm wondering, is like feeding like off the his memories? that he because, has. Because I wonder the way. So what happens is Johnny turns around. He's going to the cop's going to write him a ticket. It's very scary. And then he looks up and the cop is like, oh, my God, you're John Marinville. He lo- he fangirls out. Is that like so Holly coming hard. through? Is that what you're? I don't think so. Oh. I think because we've David mentions at one point him, like him reading his mind, and we get there's some psychic ability mm-hmm. in him. I want to know if Hack is just telling him everything he is reading from John of like this is what this guy wants to hear mm-hmm. because he really plays him like a fiddle this yeah. entire conversation yeah. especially when we t- he talks about tells him about the book tells him about the concept and he's worried the cop's gonna make fun of him and the cop's like no that's great and he pitches the idea for the cover mm-hmm. about the cover being just the motorcycle but he inside wants to be on yeah. the cover mm-hmm. and the cop immediately is like no you it's have to be, be on yes. it no smiling like straight faced because people will compare you to this and this otherwise all very hyper specific examples that yeah. John knows. It and made it, me want to barf when John then like tries on the look. Yeah. In front of us and the what cop. A piece of shit. And it, this is even better because all of this is happening and John like immediately is disarmed mm-hmm. despite the fact the cop is covered in blood. Yep. And he notices that. Yeah, and he's he gets like, it oh, on that's his weird. hand because he shakes his hand. Yeah, and he and wants he's just to look like, down, and he's like, "I'm not going to look at it." Yeah. but oh, I'm so flattered. Yeah, <laughs> like I must have been. He must have been clearing roadkill. It's the only possible explanation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in the midst of all this, this fanboying, he does look at the motorcycle and says, "Quote: Do you know how dangerous motorcycles are? I can tell you that because I'm a wolf and I get reports." <laughs> <laughs> that's the part I was like, "The hell." See, okay, that's the only one I would have been like, oh, that must be some, like, cop. Like, <laughs> You're right? Some, uh, I don't know. But as he starts getting a little weirded yep. out, which flips over when they turn and there is a coyote on the side of the road. This, <laughs> I, I, okay, I don't know what I was expecting. Yeah. I was not expecting Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> but it, it's such, so he, the cop, approaches the coyote and starts, he yells tack and he claps his hands and it doesn't tack a la. And he says, there's another phrase he says. should be stupid and feel stupid and sound stupid. And it doesn't. No. Well, and I like that. So he does all this. The coyote eventually runs away and immediately John asks, like, is it, was that like an Indian language? That's like thinking maybe there's something local. And he's Mm -hmm. like, Nope, I it's, it's just nonsense. I, I, uh, I, all I had to do was steal his eyes. Yeah, he's, Johnny says, <laughs> how did you do that? It listened to you. And he said, no, it didn't. No, it didn't. I stole its eyes and just leaves it at that. Was that coyote not under his control until just that moment? No. Is that what he meant by I, he stole its eyes? Yeah, he took now, control. Because now they've added, made, like, yeah. and that's why it was growling when it came up. That's because it was one of the coyotes in the area not yet under his control. And he just, that was him taking control of it. Yeah. I, I would be. assume so That's because so cool. later on he does a similar thing and summons a crowd uh, That's true. of mm-hmm. buzzards. <laughs> mm-hmm. So at, at this point, Johnny uh, is finally on board with being scared. <laughs> <laughs> and that is when the cop says, oh, you better fix that. 
and points at the saddlebag on Johnny's motorcycle, which is suddenly unclasped, despite the fact that Johnny knew that it was closed. Yeah, because he had looked at the map and put it back and zipped it up. And he noticed that this entire conversation, the cop has stood at a place where he wouldn't be able to mm-hmm. see the saddlebag. Mm-hmm. It's so fucking ooh, smart. Ooh, can I say what's in it? Yeah. It is a bag of pot with a smiley face sticker. What are the odds? <laughs> yeah, it, it, immediately Johnny is like, this is the point where it's like, oh, I'm such a dick. I'm such a <laughs> stupid. This guy probably doesn't even like my books. True. <laughs> Which, absolutely true. And the cop looks to howling coyotes in the distance and yells, my children of the desert, the can toy. Ah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, that, brought, ben, you brought those up during Talisman, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. cause they're, they're people with animal heads. Yeah. I, okay, I'm gonna throw this out there since we're throwing stuff out that we don't know if it's anything. Because of the way this cop scenario has gone down, he does mention that his favorite book is... Song of Hammers or something. Yeah, something. <laughs> it's it's the the book he wrote about Vietnam when mm. he was in Vietnam. And I'm just curious if he's pulling something from his mind. Why he oh. picked that book? What does that book mean mm. to Johnny? I didn't even catch that because later on Johnny keeps bringing up that he served in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. I did not connect that he had written a book about Vietnam. Anyway, the cop very quickly descends to violence, breaks Johnny's deviated septum. Gross. And, like, word violence. He has some sick burns for yeah. Johnny. <laughs> He's brutal with his criticism. Yeah, ha ha, the cop hates this guy's hack book. <laughs> oh no, I agree with the cop. Uh, yeah, Johnny rolls around on the in the middle of the highway as the cop kicks him over mm. and over. He gets uh, thrown in the back of the car and remembers that he has his cellular in his pocket. Hilariously archaic old brick. (laughs) When it says he hadn't raised the antenna yet, I was like, what? I forgot all about raising cell phone antennas. At the end of this chapter, as the cop climbs on the Harley and rides it into the desert to bury it in the sand. So lazily. (laughs) Johnny makes a phone call to his lifeline, Steve Ames. It's a very tense scene with the phone call. Mm -hmm. Because it's like he doesn't know how to use his phone, and he has to figure that out first, and keeps looking up at the cop, who's just taking his time. He he gets to make the call, but the reception's bad. But yeah, it was very tense reading it. And uh, the last thing, he it disconnects. He doesn't know how much of his message got out. And the chapter ends with the cop, who has completely turned and is weirdly eloquent and Mm -hmm. well-read uh saying that johnny has forsaken his numa for his sarks as he tracks johnny with a shotgun over his shoulder while not looking at him aiming it with exact precision like a turret you know what that also tells me Hmm. he knows that he made a phone call does he yeah i think so why does that tell you that because if, if the fact that they are still in that same vicinity and he's able, which means he has eyes. Mm. He's seeing through other eyes where he's going. I can't imagine he left to, and he took so so long with the bike. Every time he need jo- that Johnny needed more time, it just so happened the cop did go back and start covering up some more. I I have this the way he we've gone from killing the whole town and now 
in the matter of only a few hours, he's Drawing collected people. Mm-hmm. people. That made me think maybe this is like, oh, he's going to bring some people. Hmm. All right. Yeah. Let, him, let him make a call. I like the idea of he can literally see out of the shotgun. That is- he has <laughs> holes in just the idea, idea of him being able to see out of any hole is very <laughs> that scary. Is pretty, oh. That's pretty uh, fucking cool. That's the, a good power. Yeah, the the uh, chapter ends with them driving off. The cop hacking up chunks of his own lungs. That is so upsetting. While mm-hmm. uh, coyotes flank the road. The idea of just sneezing and then the whole windshield's covered in bits. It's interesting that the writer got the most cinematic (laughs) trip to the police station of anybody. Yeah. Next up, chapter four, we meet uh, Steve Ames. Who wants to talk about Steve? I love Steve. He's like this chill hippie guy. He was a roadie. He does like guitar tech stuff for bands who are on tour. And we we meet him as he is following, you know, 70 to 100 miles behind Johnny because Johnny's publishers want him to have somebody nearby because he's an older guy mm-hmm. making this trek across the country. And so they just want, you know, eyes on him for, well, yeah, because they know what kind of guy he is and yeah. also because he's older and they're yeah, sure he's safe. Yeah, it's really obvious that no one trusts Johnny. <laughs> yeah. Like, they give him all these rules of you can't, Give you Steve know, the rules. Can't, yeah. Can't, yeah, they give Steve the rules that you can't drink with him, you can't get him drugs, don't get him women. Mm-hmm. And Steve is like, yeah, I'll do what I can. <laughs> I, yeah, I do love, that just shows how chilly is because he's like, I'm not going to go out of my way to make these things happen, but I'm going to let the guy do his thing and then I'll do the best I can to keep track of him. Yeah, which leads us to him immediately breaking one of these rules. No hitchhikers. In the best, best possible way because we know this character. Yeah, surprise. We have a returning friend. He pulls over and lets in this skinny, small girl with two-tone hair and a broken broken nose. nose. Cynthia from Rose Matter. She's just as feisty as ever. This scene, though, did remind me of the scene from The Fog when Jamie Lee Curtis gets into Tom Atkins' truck. I believe it's The Fog. There are a couple scenes like this in in the 70s and 80s. But she's like, are you a serial killer? And it's it's just like this. It's a very casual exchange. I want to ask you to your opinions on the relationship between these two characters. Because at first, I did say, I I wrote down, I wrote down, please let these two's relationship stay cute and non-sexual. Okay, here's the thing, because I I initially picked up on, ooh, they have a really good chemistry. It's Mm -hmm. like a friendship chemistry. And... I I can't remember, but I'm I'm okay with it staying that way. But it's also like that sort of fluidness where if it were to turn romantic, I'd accept it, and I think I I would I like them together. So I'm happy either way it goes. Hmm. I ship it. You I'm ship on board. it. You ship yeah. it. Yeah. I, yeah. Just the there is such a chance that it could be creepy. She is very obviously like. I don't know. Said she says, "Don't call me Cookie." Like, and yeah. it's fun and flirty, but like, it's I, I, I don't, don't know. mind it because he's he's receptive to like he's an older guy. I think mm. that's what you're talking about. But he's receptive yes. to her feelings and the seriousness mm-hmm. of them at any given moment. So putting them, I think this works. Putting them in a scenario where they're sort of like bound together against a, a bigger force 
and because King's written him as like sensitive to her moods, I think that makes that would make it for me not creepy. Yeah, That's, sure. Yeah, it's uh, my reasoning is that I remember that in the series he's played by Steven Weber, mm, and okay. I want Cynthia I, to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> so like, but those two things, you I'm on what? board. You're on your way to convincing me. With that. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, there they have this ride where they're. They kind of swap stories. It is very sweet. I I Mm -hmm. like these two as uh, the friendship seems so natural is what makes me be like, there doesn't need to be a romantic relationship. They can fuck though. But yeah, they, they totally friends. fuck. Well, yeah. It's it's the the fact that their first like playful interaction is like he's looking at her shirt and she makes a comment about him looking at her tits and well, he's she's like, like no I, I was know, I, I know you can't be looking at him they're yeah. too small and then he's like I oh I w- I worked with that guy and he talks about gigs they did mm-hmm. and so like that icebreaker mm-hmm. makes everything going forward have that you know fun yeah. playful banter yeah. between them these two are one thousand percent the two characters I like the most in yeah. the book so far. Um, yeah. but and she as, drops Norman Daniels, like mentions. Uh, yeah, is telling about the guy that broke her nose and yeah. how her and her friend Gert saved DNS. Yeah, I like the, the idea that Cynthia stayed and was like a counselor for a yeah. little bit after the shit went down. That's so nice. And I, I love that he asks, hey, did they catch the guy that did that? And she's like, nope. <laughs> he disappeared for some reason. Yeah. I wonder if there's a story in that. <laughs> but as they're driving along, Steve gets a phone call. And it is the phone call that is broken up. It sounds like it is as far away as it is. Mm-hmm. The signal is terrible. And he picks up just enough to know the basic area that he's on, Interstate 80, uh, somewhere east of wherever he's a mile from an RV yeah. on the side of the road mm-hmm. yeah. and something about cops. Cynthia offers, I, I can get out and go. If you need to go take care of something, he decides he wants a witness and says, uh, no, you can come along, but there may be blood. He thinks that he just got into an accident mm-hmm. and he's sitting on the side of the road, bleeding, waiting for him or help. And so, yeah, telling her, yeah, come along so I can have somebody with me. And like, Thinking he's warning her about how bad it might be, mm-hmm. and it's just, if she'd gotten out, man. <laughs> <laughs> as they drive, I have a note here that at one point Steve describes Johnny as a, quote, politically correct Sam Peckinpah hero, and I'm like, I don't think you know what those words mean. <laughs> I don't know what part of Johnny is politically correct to you, but okay. <laughs> they drive along, and they come across this RV. While they're driving, Cynthia does notice a fleck of light in the desert, uh-huh. but thinks it's just Micah, sun reflecting off Micah. They get to the RV and decide to investigate. I love that as they're going through the RV, it is an orgy of evidence that these people did not leave in a calm manner. Mm-hmm. And that's the the unsettling bit about it. There's also a fun bit where Cynthia thinks he's psychic for a second. I do he knows, love that. Yeah, because he's like, he David in the dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Says where they're from and pieces mm-hmm. all this together and shows her all the evidence. But because this is the third time we've come back to this RV in this first part, I feel like just every time we're here, I'm just sad. Yes. <laughs> I'm sad and worried every second. Because an RV is a home. Yes. In a way. Mm-hmm. And so you feel like you're seeing the skeleton home. That's perfect. Yeah. That's exactly the feeling. They find nothing and decide to drive a mile and a half back. And Steve walks looking for something. 
and they find a notepad uh, with Johnny's name on it and an unfinished autograph. Mm-hmm. And in the distance, the bike. They go out into the desert and dig it up and feel watched. Mm. Honestly, it's how I hope you guys find me. With a partially written autograph. (laughs) (laughs) What? Yeah. I guess we've all... Going out, living the way I I wanted to live. We've all said how we want the others to find us. Yeah. That's true. We're a morbid group. (laughs) (laughs) They leave the bike and decide that they are going to go get help in the nearest town that Cynthia remembers on the map. And it's got such a cute name. Yeah, (laughs) sure. I did think that. I was like, oh, isn't it cute? Desperation. Well, she was like, oh, you're going to love this. It's so cute. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the the line that stuck out to me just because I was still just so happy about the Rose Matter connection is that when the coyotes howl and Cynthia shares her fear of things that bite. Yeah, mm-hmm. I that was it brought me right back to that book. Just, yeah, it yes. took me back to Norman Daniels. All right. Chapter five, we return to the jail cell right where we left off. Mary giving up the ghost, dropping Mm -hmm. the shotgun. The old white-haired man in the cell with David says, don't bother grabbing for it, it's empty. But David, our point-of-view character for this chapter, sees something else resting against the bars of his cell. Shotgun shell, hanging now. And he has an intuition that he needs to get that shell, so he picks his moment, and when the cop is not looking, he snags it, and he looks... It's just very tense because he's looking to make sure no one else is watching him either. Because he doesn't want anybody to make a comment and tip the cop off, which Mm. makes sense. But yeah, yeah, we find a lot about David here. Mm. This is interesting because we, again, I didn't realize this came right after Green Mile. I thought it just came after Green Mile for us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We have a religious character who has a very unique (laughs) experience. Yeah. And is it's it's not King's, you know, Mrs. Carmody religious mm, character. Right. It's more Paul, I guess. Yeah, or, yeah, absolutely. As the cop puts Mary in the drunk tank between the two other groups, we find out that the old man's name is Tom. And David notices that each time anyone makes eye contact with the cop, they seem briefly hypnotized. Mm-hmm. Well, he notices that Mary uh, has a hard time pulling her eyes away and that Tom hides his eyes when the cop comes near and the cop comes over directly to him and kneels down and stares into his eyes. He knows there's something special about David, but he doesn't know what it is. And David feels like he's trying to read his mind because he's like, who are you? And he's not asking him his name. He's asking him what about him is different and why. Mm hmm. And he mentioned David mentions that as much as he is staring into this cop's eyes and he can see the pupils shifting and changing, but that the hypnosis, at least for a second, seemed to go both ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's keenly aware that the eyes look unconscious, which I thought. That's a weird thing for this kid to know. Mm-hmm. Well, and then we, here yeah, we go. Not so weird. Not weird anymore. I do want to mention that the cop goes to leave and then suddenly springs back into the room and David describes him as looking like Garfield. What? <laughs> anyway, not important. The cop admonishes them all saying, you have to stay here. 
mm-hmm. when the, the sun's going to go down soon and you are not going to want to be out there when the sun goes down. I, I believed him. Yeah, yep, same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, mm-hmm. it's so weird. I, I couldn't tell if he was trying to make them think he had their best interests in mind or if there's part of him that does, but then another part of him that has other plans mm-hmm. and... Like he, like part of him thinks like, oh, yep, I'm gathering these people. I'm keeping them safe. I had to shoot some of them. That's fine. (laughs) To me, it certainly feels like. Is he feeding them to someone, something? Is he gathering food? Mm. Oh, fuck. There's so many things. We need to find out Ah! in the episodes. (laughs) Anyway, the the cop leaves and David does what he is going to do. He kneels down and prays and his mom acts like she (laughs) has never heard of praying. She thinks he's fainted and and her reaction is insane. You know, yeah, like we we sometimes cringe with with Bible stuff, but I'm going to have a lot of stuff to say (laughs) about the church. But yeah. She's just, they're freaked out because they're not religious and Mm -hmm. they have seen their son go through something very upsetting and then find comfort not in his parents and seek knowledge and wisdom not in his parents, but in the church and not even a church that they'd gone to a few times Mm -hmm. that he might be familiar with, but just some other random church. And they're, I think, appropriately like hesitant of their child spending time with an adult person mm-hmm. who is not one of them. And like, this, that they've right not on. met or no. Yeah, yeah. And Ralph's just like, if, if he's doing anything other than talking to my son, I will kill him. And like later it's, we kind of find out like <laughs> the guy, yeah. he's definitely only talking to him, of, but he's yeah. just drunk the whole yeah, he time. Just drinks yeah. the whole time. Just, come on, dude. Anyway, he goes down, he, he his mom is like, oh, I'm praying. It's crazy. While he is praying, we get the backstory of what happened to David's friend, Brian. I'm going to kind of go through it I real quick. It. A year prior to this, David's best friend, Brian, was hit by a drunk driver. Badly enough that he flew across the yard and slammed into a brick house. And David receives the call from Brian's mother and is told he is not expected to live Uh, He is on life support and will be removed from life support after his grandparents can come see him. So David asks his parents if he can go visit. And they kind of hem and haw, Mm -hmm. rightfully so. I I think it's... Figuring out if if it's it's best for an 11-year-old or a 10-year-old, I Mm -hmm. guess, at this point. And they decide... Well, he says, he's like, oh, you can drive me or not, or I'll go. (laughs) I'm going, it's happening. I'm going. And the whole time he's talking about feeling... I, I do like this turn of phrase, feeling that he is small and a part and not a whole, mm-hmm. which is a, a very cool, mm-hmm. like, I what I tend to believe is that yeah. humanity is not a bunch of individuals. Mm-hmm. We are all a part of a bigger collective, you know. But he says he feels something else moving inside him, guiding him, right? He goes to the hospital and sees his friend and he's not there the most gone anyone's ever Mm -hmm. been the way he describes it later and in me like looking into his friend's eyes knows it's over he Mm -hmm. is not there anymore right so he goes home and plays basketball while his parents are sad (laughs) and decides to go 
to the woods where him and Brian used to play, where he finds a three musketeer wrapper that he sucks on, despite the fact it's been in the woods for several days. I think it was their wrappers. Yeah. Yeah. Still weird. It was Brian's wrapper. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, not great. I mean, but yeah. <laughs> but he has this very, like, spiritual walk through the woods to this uh, tree platform that they built together. And he sits and prays and gets a response like that shit is so crazy (laughs) because he's you know talking to the universe he's a mother abigail character yeah very much Mm -hmm. because he's like i don't know what i'm doing because my family's not religious and the voice comes back and saying like you're praying praying, like you're doing it what praying is (laughs) and i was like that's so fucking cool i'm so in long story short he asked god heal my friend and i'll owe owe you you one And then it happens. So this book posits the Christian God is real. (laughs) Deal with it, everyone. Not only is he real, but he almost killed a child to manipulate another child into giving him a favor. Yes. And we are supposed to be like, wow, a miracle. I don't think we're supposed to be like, wow, a miracle. I think we're supposed to be as like, oh my gosh, as we are. Yeah, it (laughs) is. It is. This is the beginning of what it, the theme of a cruel god, mm-hmm. and I am really excited to explore a book that is a newly very somebody who has been touched by a miracle, be it the Christian god or the white or whatever mm-hmm. this the counterforce to this tack, whatever that is. But to explore the themes of a cruel god with a character going through that, I think is going to be so fucking cool. It makes me, it gives me the stand vibes because it's like in the Green Mile, Paul talked about God a lot, but it was just, that's it. Like Mm -hmm. no supernatural or mystical things. Mm -hmm. But when it's done like it is here and in the stand, it's paired with supernatural things. I, I don't know. It's it's so it's completely different for me, like reading about it between sure. these two books. Yeah. yeah. No, this is entirely your mileage may vary. Personally, mm-hmm. this entire section Fucked really you. triggered yeah? my oh. fucking oh. religious trauma. Yeah, See, that makes I, sense. I, I kept the picturing whole... the guy as fa- a Father Callahan type, like a real flawed. Sure. Well, mm, it's yeah. not that. It's the whole concept of the, the church is my problem. <laughs> yeah. Because like they talk and the priest is like yes god is cruel david and i'm like mm-hmm. cool god bro <laughs> like i'm really glad like i there's a section where he goes back he tells this whole story and then he's in the darkness praying and he, it is all discussed so literally the voices of deities i guess talking directly to mm-hmm. him is discussed so literally and there's this moment where he says this evil this other voice that is not God came through and said, hey, don't worship God. He killed your fan. He killed your sister. He hurt your friend. Do it. And the entire time I'm reading it, I'm going, making some good points. <laughs> making some <laughs> fucking good points there. Because like, yeah, I could ramble about I, this, but know. I won't. Well, and they also talk about the, uh, I'm, I'm not well-versed in religion, but they talk about when Brian does wake up and the parents call him and he feels the sense of if I say that like they I try to give him credit. Right. If I accept this credit, I make a legend out of mm-hmm. myself and a legend out of this. But is reflects on the like he decide he decides without knowing this prior to not take credit for it because it's not about him. Mm-hmm. 
And later it's talked about the story of Moses where Moses does something with water, not the the splitting. He it. takes credit. But for, he takes credit yeah. for something. And Which then leads is, to a really hilarious moment where the minister is like, David, you're better than Moses. Like, <laughs> come on. I've always felt better than Moses. <laughs> yeah, he wakes up and I, all that said, like I said, Ellen, his mother's reaction of being like, you can't pray. David is... Fine. <laughs> let, the, <laughs> let the kid pray. Whatever. As they are all there, they start hearing noises, commotion from outside, and God says the soap. Uh, oh, we cu- Ooh, I'm yep. so sorry. There's an idea that I also wanted to to bring up. We're like so I, close. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I talked about how excited I am about just the themes of this book. Yeah. I'm what I'm also very excited to talk about is seeing how the relationship between Johnny and David develops because we establish. A lot of uh, Johnny's AA stuff mm-hmm. very early on. He's anti. He's anti AA again. A very '90s view mm-hmm. of AA. Yeah, definitely not Danny. Yes, definitely not Danny. It's uh, this version of AA is treated at, as the pop culture version of AA, mm-hmm. which means you have to have, commit complete ego. He death thinks people are pathetic. Yeah, yeah. And it, the that whole thing of AA of turning everything over to God. Mm-hmm meeting a character like David who mm. is doing that for a very yeah. different reason. I'm really excited to see how these two characters are going to hmm. uh, mesh. It, especially because it is hinted that they will be pitted against each other. What? Mm, we'll get with, to it. With the cop? Yeah, because we cut to uh, Johnny and the cop who Arriving. has begun <laughs> sneezing teeth. <laughs> oh, I hate that so uh, bad. Johnny looks around as they're driving through town and thinks, where is everyone? And I had not thought about it yet. We find out that Desperation had a population of around 200, and they are all gone. Oh. Well, except one guy who was napping, <laughs> who napped through the apocalypse uh, in this town. Billy Rancourt, who I was like, oh, I remember that, <laughs> that name, name from somewhere. Familiar. It sounds super Doesn't familiar. Doesn't matter. He's just going to get run over by the cop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Billy Rancourt, the town's barber, is just in the middle of the street, dazed. Looking around, gets ran down in mm-hmm. the street. This is the commotion that was judged. Uh, the people in the jail cell was just hearing. And Johnny is sarcastic with the cop about it. He gives him shit for it. And he's recognizing in himself like, oh, I'm getting angry and I need to keep that in check because this guy is dangerous. So no more comments like the one I just made because (laughs) he didn't seem Mm. to appreciate that one. And they, when they get to the jail, the cops, he's just like pressing his buttons and he's like, I could let you go. Well, there's one little bit I wanted to mention mm-hmm. is that when Johnny loses his temper for the first time, the cop responds by quoting the Bible at him. Proverbs, a chapter that I looked up and read, uh, that is all about following your father's instructions to not do evil. Uh, I It just gives me the way the cop suddenly changed because he has been purely antagonistic, mm-hmm. has been like... Your writing is shit. You're an idiot. You're, the title of your book sucks. <laughs> and I hate you. And in this moment when Johnny, like, lets the, he says, he, like, he lets a little of his real self, the unedited Johnny, out. And he calmly says this thing about, follow my instructions. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder where the relationship between these two characters oh, are going. Oh, shit. Anyway. The, well, I know where the relationship between the cop and Johnny are going. Yeah. <laughs> not, not to sexy town, but almost. It's 
uh, surprisingly unhomophobic. This this moment uh, yeah, Johnny responds <laughs> because the cop is like, I can let you go. All you got to do is suck my cock. All you got, and he whips it out, and it's dripping blood. Oh, it's bad. Gross. And I so <laughs> fully expected some big response. Sure. But Johnny's like, I'm pissed off. Not because he implied that I had to do a gay act. I don't like anything being stuck in my face. <laughs> Which, <laughs> phrasing. <laughs> But yeah, it's surprisingly I, like reasonable. Yeah, and I love his responses. I was in Vietnam. I have seen my fair share of bleeding dicks, or I've <laughs> yeah. seen worse than bleeding dicks. Whatever mm. he says, and so all I have to say to you is, a couple seconds after you put that thing in my mouth, I am biting it off. And, and then he yells "tack" in his face. Yes, and it's so cool. So fucking ballsy. They're spitting his words. Back at him, which just shows you that th those words have power. They mean something. And yeah, the cop freaks out and pushes him against the wall and summons a buzzard, which starts attacking him and ripping flesh from his skull yep. and making Johnny beg to let it go. And the cop just responds with, take care of it yourself I or die. I love that when he was like, okay, yeah, I'll let you live, but... Get it off yourself. It's it's so. Are you, are you talking about the? We're kind of talking about the buzzer. Are you talking about the blowjob? <laughs> Jesus Christ! I'm so sorry. Suck off this buzzer yourself, or so, die. And Johnny, this is the point. Johnny rips a bird in half. Yeah, he does, and beats it against a wall. I would probably do that too if it was clawing oh, my if face you off. Had to, unfortunately. Yeah, but it's so but. The second after. The fact that this moment is the cop forcing Johnny to commit an act of violence, the fact that it is followed up with the cop looking up to where the cells are and saying, I worry about the boy. Maybe you can consult me. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. It, it is setting up this dynamic where Johnny is being forced as much as, yeah. much as his ego says that he is, oh, I'm going to get so mad. And he is then met with violence and he's immediately kowtowed. Get cowed. He's immediately a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just that the fighting and ripping a bird in half took some fight out of him. It's that afterwards he looks up and he sees mm -hmm. more buzzards circling mm -hmm. and the cop's just like, I can bring Up more down. Yeah. How you want to handle this. Let's do it. At the end of part one, we learn a couple more things. First of all, the cop has a name. Kali Itragian. Cool name. Question. Cool name, yeah. Yeah, short for Collier, which is a very scary name. Um, <laughs> and uh, we learn that Desperation had a population of about, of about 200. Tom, the old man with the white hair, is the town's vet. That Kali came to Desperation years ago and worked in the mines until being hired on as a well, cop. Well, until something happened in the mines and then he... Mm -hmm. And then he walked with a limp after the accident. Yeah. And now he does not have a limp and he's 
bigger. Taller and weighs more. Three inches taller, 60 pounds heavier. How the fuck does that happen? We will find out in part two as we leave off all of our characters minus two gathered in the jail cells. One big happy family. That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us for our next episode where we will be covering through part two. For Benjamin Graham and CM Alexander, I'm Joshua Khan reminding you, there's no God in desperation. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thank you for listening to Desperation Part 2. We hope you enjoyed it. What do you think is going to happen between David and Johnny? Let us know on our Facebook and Instagram at Dairy Public Radio or Twitter at Dairy Public. You can also send us an email at dairypublicradio at gmail.com. Check out our Etsy store for merchandise and our Patreon for bonus episodes at the $5 and up tier. We sincerely appreciate your support on our store and Patreon. Every dollar helps keep the studio lights on and you get extra stuff in exchange. So please check that out at patreon.com slash dairypublicradio. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.